You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from your semi-occluded vocal tract, have you practiced today? Through that, we got through this thing, now, now I'm focusing on opera time. And then the next week is just a really quickly thing. before we bring our guest in. I just do want to say that we did have a wonderful concert. Many many thanks um, to Ezekiel Andrew, who is our distinguished young alum from Mississippi College and currently the Mufasa Swing on Broadway. Uh, not yes, I said Mufasa. Yeah, sorry, I was, was right. about to say Simba, and I was like, that ain't right. No, that um, would have that would be interesting. But uh, <laughs> joined joined forces with Lyric Stage at MC for a concert last night, and it was just spectacular. It was fabulous. Um, and. Uh, sold out house and uh, it was really a wonderful night so lovely anyway but we are here with elizabeth benson speaking of broadway singing and contemporary singing um elizabeth welcome to vocal fry thank you so much thank you for having me i'm excited to be here it's great to have you with us today um so elizabeth I wanted to have you on to talk about your wonderful book of your collection of people that you talked about with contemporary singing. We'll get to that. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit, uh, first of all, where are you currently? What, what is your current position? Where are you, what are you currently doing? And then we'll talk a little bit about your journey. Sure. So um, right now I teach at um, Auburn University in the theater department. I teach applied voice for musical theater majors and a singing practicum class, which is singing fundamentals group class for non-majors. And I also teach introduction to reading music. Um, And that's for our musical theater majors who come in with a really strong ear who don't read. And um, those who might have come from a sound design background or uh, stage management as well. So um, that's a new class that I'm just teaching this semester, which I'm really excited. Excited about. I like that though because there are so many people I think particularly in like theater or singers or whatever that come in that yeah have great ears um, maybe play by ear or something like that but just know sheet music in their right past. exactly and especially for singers because you know you mm-hmm. can be extraordinarily proficient at your instrument without reading a note sure so um so it's been really really common it's a trend we saw over i've been this is my ninth year and so we just saw that year after year folks were coming in with less and less contact with reading music because of public school funding cutting oh, and yeah. you know people just not having access to training um, unless they could take privately outside of school and and, um, you know, with um, a lot of folks involved in college or high school theater um, troops and things like that, there's not always a lot of time for applied lessons. I've, sure. I found that, too. So I also own my own True. independent studio um, and I teach a lot of pre-college, um, you know, musical theater bound folks and, uh, you know, kids who are doing regional theater in the area in musical theater and you know, they're they're just not always able to even take lessons consistently because they're so busy with theater. Um, yep. And so it ends up being sort of a, a real missed opportunity. So they come into college, you know, very good at what they're doing, but unable to really keep up on the theory side. So um, so this this class was introduced to try to fill that gap and also for um, increased inclusion and diversity, because not everybody comes from um, an affluent yeah. high school theater and music program that is able to provide those foundational skills so that students can be competitive in college. So we just felt it was really important for our for our mission statement in our department, which is about 
citizen artistry and, um, you know, really figuring out who you are in relation to theater. Um, it's very individualized. It's not a conservatory. So um, that's why we introduced that class. You know, on a very practical note, that related actually to our concert last night because we hired a sound designer and who did an excellent job oh, yeah. mi- mixing because um, we ended up basically using head mics for our choir and you know for, for the ensemble for the concert and mm-hmm. and mixing the band in with that and whatever but there were a couple of moments where Ezekiel specifically because he was doing music of the night so he specifically wanted the reverb to happen at the end of music Just of the night and Sarah had to sit <laughs> yeah. beside the sound engineer <laughs> to show, show them in the, the music, music. <laughs> yeah. go. Exactly. Yeah. So a very useful a useful skill for a sound designer, too. Definitely. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. F- uh, phenomenal. So, uh, you know, Elizabeth, how, you know, how did you get there? Like, what was your, you know, but were you... One of the things that I've found on this show is that there there are no two journeys that are identical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, y- y- you know, so I'm interested to hear, you know, what your path was like that, that, that got you here. Sure. So, well, I grew up doing musical theater. That was my, my parents saw that I was uh, struggling socially. And so they thought, let's put her in something that has some structured social exercises. Why? So that's how I ended up in musical theater. I was actually primarily a dancer. Um, I, oh. I was just in the ensemble and whatever dance roles that were available, that's what I would do. I was not a big singer, um, but I sang in choir and sang for fun and played some instruments and, you know, really enjoyed music. So um, I got to college and I, I thought I would just double major for funsies. In in music and biochemistry, I was pre med. Wow! And yeah, yeah, I just thought people just major in music so for fun, simple, you know? So easy. Yeah, wow. as a, just as a release from all that science. Ooh. So, <laughs> so about a year and a half in, you know, I went to a really small college, Occidental College in Los Angeles. So I had really small classes, a lot of good contact with professors, and um, my music professors said, "Hey, maybe you should think about taking this a little more seriously and not just have it be your outlet from from your other." major and at that same time I started to really come up against some roadblocks in um, really advanced calculus and organic chemistry and I I sort of had to weigh like do I want to spend my life in the library or do I want to experience college and music was so much fun and so I kind of you know with the support of a lot of uh, professors who really believed in me who really like took me aside and took the time to talk to me seriously about it um, decided to to major in music and go full out so um, from there I went to New England Conservatory for my master's um, and then to the CUNY Graduate Center in New York for my DMA. Mm-hmm. And um, to be honest, I, I, I went into the DMA to kill time. I think I was 25 when I finished my master's. I didn't feel like I was really ready for um, a professional career. It was a you know light lyric coloratura soprano and you know you're not always fully baked by by your mid-20s. And so, so I, I went into the DMA um, and then, you know, really enjoyed digging deeper into everything and the, you know, the theory and things like that, that I had not found to be um, really related to my own interpretations. When By the time you get to Shankarian analysis and some really advanced concepts, I saw how it was all connected. And so it really kind of awakened my intellect in a way that um, my master's program had been very performance oriented. And um, and so then I, I was going through finishing my doctorate. I, I wrote my dissertation on the art songs of Tom Chipulo. And Tom Chipulo, of course, is very famous now, but was not as well known back in the day when I was in in my um, doctoral program. And he um, his songs have a heavy theater and jazz influence. And so so it really kind of took me full circle back around to my roots in theater and um, 
the integration of American styles into Western European classical music. And it was really fascinating. And then um, I, I started teaching. So I, I moved out of New York. Um, I had a baby and I didn't want to raise a baby in New York. And so I moved to Colorado for kind of a more balanced life for some performance opportunities, teaching opportunities and family opportunities. And started teaching at a community music school, Dana V Music, right outside of Boulder, Colorado. And all the demand there was for musical theater. So there was a, a huge sort of performing arts high school with a huge theater budget and they put on these amazing shows every year and those students wanted training and they didn't want to learn Italian art songs. They wanted to learn the stuff that they were going to sing in school. Now hold on, pause here for a second. <laughs> so just so I'm, I'm clear, but, but so like you're at, in college, were you doing, you weren't like a musical theater major. No, classical. So it was like cool. classical and your masters as well? Yep. Yeah, and, and so like it wasn't like uh, and you know you had said you had sort of started out in, in musical theater or whatever like yes. in high school very similar to me very similar to me, and 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 you know it, you know then I was when I went to college and I was going to be very fancy and you know and 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 I was I was very elitist and rude, um and and a classical what? singing and, but so you did the whole classical singing thing yes. and 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 so. And, and so then it, it sounds like, you know, actually kind of finding Tom's songs and then, you know, this first time out teaching a little bit kind of maybe was a redirection there. Yeah, 100 percent. I, you know, I always thought I was going to have a career singing opera. I, I thought that that was what I was bound for or or even better. I would be even happier singing art song. I wanted to be the next Ellie Ameling. And, oh, wow. you know, that, that's, that's what I so hyper specific. That's what I wanted to do so badly. But, you know, I quickly realized there was no money in that. There was no stability in that. There was no. I, I, can't imagine. Yeah, I did have a baby I needed to provide yeah, for. Food is good. Health insurance, these types Just of little things, basic human dignities. So um, I wanted I wanted something something more uh, more stable and so I sort of quickly realized that like teaching was going to be um, a, a good outlet for me because I could still apply all my skills and feel like I hadn't wasted my life in all those yeah. years yeah. of schooling but um, but that I could still sort of contribute in a way that was meaningful and I felt fulfilled by and so really once I discovered how much I loved teaching I kind of didn't look back and I I, I, I still you know perform for fun on the side but I really think of myself primarily as a teacher teacher yeah. first and um, and so it was not just a redirection. I actually had to start my education kind of all over again because nothing in my classical training had prepared me to teach a 15-year-old how to belt. Sure, right. sure. So, um, and that's exactly what they wanted to do. And whether I approved or not as their teacher, they were going to be belting at home and in the shower and in the car. Yep. So, yeah. you know, I sort of, you know, right away realized there's nothing I can do to hold back this tide. I need to figure out how to do it in a healthy, sustainable way. And I just thought... There's so many performers out there belting eight shows a week with long careers. There has to be a healthy and safe way to do it. I just need to learn how. And, you know, like I said, nothing in my classical training had given me that information. And so I had to go seek it out. And so um, so I started doing all these, you know, training programs and all the different methodologies that are out there, like Lisa Popiel's voice work and Jeannie Lovetri's somatic voice work. Um, and, you know, I've done, a, you know, a number of them. I've done Estelle. I've done Soul Ingredients, Scream with Melissa Cross, uh, Rock the Edition with Sherry Sanders. I've worked with Dane Chalfin and Kim Chandler in the UK and um, Vocal Health Education. Um, also based in the UK. So so I just kind of continue like 
uh, you know, attending all of these trainings and then coming back to the studio and integrating. And also for myself, I had to learn myself how to belt. I had to learn myself how to make all the musical theater sounds yeah. that I was going to need to teach. Yep. And that was quite a journey. I think the first time I belted, I was 27. And of oh, course, wow. I was very, very bad at it. Okay. And <laughs> and I it was, you know, it's so demoralizing because I was used to from my classical training. I don't want to practice something unless I'm already very good at it, yeah. you know, and then I will <laughs> then I will practice it a lot, very loudly. Um, but but I think you, I you know, know what I mean? Know. Like it took a certain amount of kind of like, OK, I had to kind of extract my ego from the process because I needed to learn how to do it from the ground up. And it was yeah. it was like chest voice kind of for the first time really and as a light lyric coloratura soprano i mean like i had hardly ever used my chest register and so this was this was all very new and it did take a little while but um you know i had really good teachers and friends and colleagues who helped me along the way and um and it was a great journey you know and now when i work with students who are learning how to belt for the first time i know exactly what they're going through i know exactly what they're feeling and yeah. um and how it you know the different um you know subtleties in terms of how it manifests in your instrument and how it shifts things around and it resets defaults and changes sort of your vocal identity in some ways um that can be a little bit unnerving at the beginning but ultimately leads to a much broader expressive palette so it's totally worth it um if you can just you know sit through the journey you know it is interesting to, to think about your path there that I, I i like to you know at this point and for the last decade or so you know like in pedagogy classes i as sarah would tell you you know i make sure that that we're talking about singing musical theater training and listening to that in the in the class and and talking about it in the class as much as we talk about classical if sure. it, yeah. you know if not more yeah um because the bottom line is i keep telling them look your 14 year olds are not going to want to learn to sing caro mio ben true but for the next 50 years they're going to want to sing let it go yes <laughs> and for that matter you're your college students. Well, so, I, yes. mean, I mean, for, for for that matter, but it is interesting thinking back because you know, I mean, but that was not my training in college. Mm -hmm. You know, right. when I went through pedagogy classes, sure, sure. which was not vocal fam. I am not that old. <laughs> We're only talking about twenty years ago here. Okay? Yeah, but it's I, changed completely since then. Yeah, but we've really yeah. we've really seen a shift. Yeah, you know. And um, so I just, you know, I, I don't want it to be an indictment against, you know, your programs that you came through or anything. Yeah, it's, just, it's just what pedagogy was back, you know. Yeah, that's, well, you know, if I had it all to do again, you know, I would take a different educational path knowing sure. where I was going to end up. But yeah. at the time for the goals that I had, I was I was treading exactly the correct path that I was supposed to be taking. Exactly. So, you know, and there weren't as many options. You know, there weren't 175 musical theater programs for me to choose from as an undergrad. Right. And, you know, I. I wanted a particular college experience and like I said I wasn't even a music major when I first started I was double majoring and I had a different career path entirely in mind so you know it, you know I would do it all differently if, if I could in terms of my education yeah, um, right. but I've had to tell myself you're not allowed to get any more master's degrees now we need to stop <laughs> it's time to stop you and me both I can't tell you the number of times like when we were really heavy in our collaboration with the hospital here, like the number of times, like my, my SLP colleague would be like, if you got your letters, I'd employ you right now. I know. And I know. Like, <laughs> so tempting. I just don't have the brain space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's those undergrad prereqs back to my organic chemistry challenges yeah. that I am not ready to revisit. Yeah. <laughs> 
have to go back and take like statistics yeah. and yes oh, it's yeah like, the, like and but then also sitting through like childhood voice disorders and this that and, the, and I'm like mm. there's so much in an SLP program that's not related it's, to voice you know so yeah, yeah to specialize yeah. is really tricky which is why I think that you know the singing voice specialist track is really interesting and yeah. I hope that we get it a little more yeah. formalized um, because I think that that's such a you know we have these million dollar ears as voice teachers that are such an asset in the clinic um, but there's no like quick path to get to apply those ears in in practice where they can have the greatest impact exactly. so yeah yeah true. yeah no true. it's true um, okay so you know it's it, a question out of coming out of that too just before we move on to some other things is so when you were transitioning there and you were kind of taking, you know, you did Lisa, you just did, did some work with Lisa and, and then of course Jeannie and, 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 and all these different things, you know, Melissa's, Melissa's course and, and whatever, um, these wonderful people, what was like one thing or, or two things that like really took you off guard when you were getting into that world? Like what, what, what like, like from your classical training, did anything like just like really just be like, wow, oh, I never even like, that's actually what's happening? Did, it, did anything just like, kind of just like floor you in that regard? I think, I think what I, what I realized is that, um, you know, I was, I was really surprised that I didn't have to be quite so precious with my voice, you know, uh, that yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that like, it's not this like very delicate breakable piece of crystal, you know? Um, yeah. And I, yes. and I, of course you need to take care of your voice and you need to know what to do. I'm not, I'm not saying be, you know, be cavalier about vocal health and hygiene. I just, I just learned that like, I could make way bigger, louder sounds than I ever had as a light lyric coloratura. And, and, um, and actually like, uh, it was really meaningful. Like I always used to say like, oh, I have mezzo envy or I have tenor envy because I could never make like a big raucous sound, you know? And I, you know, I'd get really, you know, excited when I could play something in the left hand of the piano because I felt like I was making such a big sound. Um, you know, I'm a small person, I'm short. And, you know, it just was like, it was so great to like wail, you know, just to open my mouth and make a huge sound and, and know that I was doing it in a healthy and safe way that I could do it again. I but it was just like a power trip. It was really cool. All the levels of, as a fellow short person, <laughs> small, just, yeah, yeah. There's something very satisfying in being like, I'm very loud now. Yeah. It's a big thing. I'm going to fill ah, all the space. You have to notice me. Right. I felt almost like a held in tenor. Like it was yeah. that kind of power trip, you know, when like, yeah. when like the sound is so big, the walls reverberate. That's what I felt like. And it when was... there's that phone moment where people go, I just didn't expect that. And exactly. Like, Out of such a small package, you know. Like, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Wild. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. I feel it. Okay, I feel it. so then you know your your teaching journey. You know you went through all this kind of thing. Obviously, you got a job at Auburn. Eventually, moved to you know Alabama. And um, so, where did the idea for the and if, for vocal fam? For those of you who did not know, um, Elizabeth has this great book called Training Contemporary Commercial Singers. Um, Compton, right? Compton. 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 Mm -hmm. So. How, how, where, where did this idea come from? What was the inspiration for doing this? Yeah, well, I do, I say in the book, um, you know, it was a conversation over a beer with Matthew Edwards when I was at Shenandoah doing, um, uh, in 2015, doing the Low Vetri Institute. Um, and it was, 
you know, I, I had an idea and, and we sort of were talking about it. And he was like, hey, what if you skewed it a little toward this? And he was really he really gave me the suggestion, um, you know, to interview teachers and, you know, put it all together. And I said, you know, well, don't you want to write this book? Like, why are you giving me this idea? You know, and he was like, oh, no, I don't want to write it. I don't want to write it. I think you should write it. <laughs> so he was at that point, he'd already written a book and he was very busy and, you know, very generous to share this idea with me. Um, he wanted and, to exist like it yeah. needs to be there yeah. he was like this book should exist and I you know I can't disagree um and you know it's really it, it was really the book that I wish that I had had access to when I was doing that transition from my classical training to I want to be employed and be able to meet the needs of my students in the private sector and they will take their business elsewhere if I don't give them what they want you know whereas in a university there's a little bit uh, you can sort of, you know, do what you do, offer what you're offering and the students can take it or leave it. Sure. But, you know, in the private sector, it's really about, you know, the bottom line. Do I want to have, happy. yeah, do I want to have my students? And because I was always teaching privately in addition, and even before I had my university job, um, that was really important to me to really meet their needs. So, so, so the book sort of came out of that. What did I wish I had? And, and um, the idea to put it in this sort of reference format was actually Jeannie Lovetri's idea. We were talking, talking over the format, which I had originally structured a little bit differently and ultimately we decided that arranging it by topic would be great because then it could be used as a reference so if you want to know about breathing you know and and you know my prompt for that was to all these pedagogues you know how do you teach breathing you know please describe how you teach breathing and you can read how you know 25 different folks teach breathing for CCM and you can try different things with your students just based on those suggestions and so that's why that's why I wrote it and that's really what led to it and you know like I said I, I was really you know had a lot of generous friends and colleagues helping me along the way talking it through and refining the ideas and the structure and um yeah and i i'm i'm happy with the results it, it's definitely helped me it's definitely changed my pedagogy so i mean i guess in one sense uh for any of our classical singing teachers it's a little reminiscent kind of of great singers on great singing in a way in the a little you bit know, mm -hmm. you, you know kind of in that sort of vein-esque yeah well, and I do say in the book, it's really an homage to Spectrum of Voices by Betsy Blades. Yeah, Spectrum of Voices, yeah. yes, thank you. Little and Betsy Blades generously wrote the foreword for it and, you know, really saw it as a passing of the torch. You know, she also knew that this book needed to be written. Yeah. And she was, I actually approached her to write the foreword before she put out her second edition of Spectrum of Voices, which sure. which has a lot more CCM teachers. And mm -hmm. she knew and she thought, well, I'm going to have to write this whole book again and it's going to have <laughs> to be all CCM. And when she heard I was planning to do it, she said, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to write it now. You're going to. <laughs> so, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, so, it was. it's so very much homage to her. We don't yes. need to name like every person in in, in the book, because I don't mm -hmm. want to put you on the spot to name all of them, although you could, <laughs> but like, who are some of the people who you interviewed? Give us yeah. some examples of some names. So I've definitely got representation from a lot of the major methodologies. So we have, you know, Kimberly Steinhauer for Estel. We have Seth Riggs for SLS. We've we've got um, Complete Vocal Technique with Catherine Sadelin, um, you know, trying to cover, and of course, Jeannie Lovetri, Lisa Popeil, a lot of the, you know, folks that I've, that I've personally worked sure. with. Um, also tried to get some perspectives from people abroad. And so we have Kim Chandler, Dane Chalfin, um, based in the UK. Kim Chandler's now based in Spain, but originally from Australia and taught in the UK for a while. And then some Australian pedagogues as well, Irene Bartlett, um, among others, just to try, because I wanted to, to make sure it wasn't like sort of American-centric. Um, and and yeah. so I really wanted those international perspectives. That's and, um, you know, in my second edition, I'd like even more of them. So we would have a little bit better balance. But 
Um, we've got, we've got, so we've got some major methodologies. Second edition. You, you, well, you tossed that word in very I'm making, lightly there. I'm making plans. I'm making, you know, well, because you always learn and you're like, if I, if I could do it again, what would I change? You know, and sure. I definitely have a, a short list. But, but in any case, uh, I also wanted to include younger pedagogues. And so I felt it was really important to kind of go the spectrum. So we have everybody from Kevin Wilson, who teaches at Boston Conservatory yeah. at Berkeley, um, who I went to grad school with, actually. So he's my age. Um, and then all the way up to, you know, Robert Edwin or Elizabeth Howard, you know, who are sure. who are much older, um, Le- been around for a legends. long time. Legends. Exactly. So we have the pioneering generation and then we have the next generation. And it was really interesting to see some of the changes when I when I sort of looked at things uh, based on age to sort of see what some of the trends were um, and definitely to see sort of what are we doing now that, you know, folks of my generation really benefited tremendously from those pioneers who like fought the good fight and, you know, got out in front, established methodologies and and ways of doing things, gave us language for things and, you know, tremendously uh, impactful work that they that they gave to us. Um, And it's really their life's work. But for many of them, the the information is behind a paywall because it's it's how they earn their living. And it's you know, it's their intellectual property, uh, full respect for that. But I felt like as somebody who had done a lot of the trainings that um, it was if I didn't know which ones like after I'd done them all, I sort of came to discover like which ones were most sort of um, simpatico with what I was already doing or, you know, which which were the ones I went to more frequently. And I pull tools from all of them. So so I'm not here to say like anyone is the best sure. yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but sort of some are sort of more easier, easier to integrate into what I was already doing. Yeah. And um, and I and I felt like if I was shopping around and I didn't know that I could go and spend thousands of dollars on a on a program that wasn't really going to work for me or or in instead of going to a program that was going to work really well and so part of my motivation here was also to get some information out there so folks could see some of the differences between these methodologies and maybe shop around and and decide where they wanted to go spend their money to do further training sure yeah like if you're reading through and you keep realizing oh i keep really identifying with this one yes like that might be exactly program yeah. to go to yeah yeah sure. i hadn't even right. thought of that perspective of no, that. that's like that's, that. fa- that's fantastic yeah. actually so um give us an example you said you cut you know you divide the book into topics mm-hmm. sort of you know uh you mentioned breathing i think uh, as one of them um give us some other examples of some of the things that the, how you divided that information up sure yeah so well the book is arranged in four sections the middle section is the is the sort of meat of it all it's the it's the technique section how do you teach these different pillars of vocal technique and so uh support and alignment breathing um uh, belting registers vowels um and expression expression actually originally was not part of the vocal technique section but my um interviewees wrote back to me when i sent them the questions and said you know what expression really isn't a separate topic it's a foundational part of vocal technique and it needs to be in the technique section and so that was a really cool uh opportunity to kind of reframe um and and move that in there so um i also have um consistency which i changed to in in parentheses consistency (laughs) because sometimes we want consistency between registers and sometimes we don't if we want to yodel for for country we better keep that inconsistency available so so um 
So it was definitely like a, you know, I was able to make some adjustments. I was limited by the IRB, you know, to to make, uh, you know, major shifts. But certainly in terms of how I organized the content and how I presented it in the book, um, you know, I really did listen to, you know, my colleagues and the contributors uh, who were very generous with their time. And um, and I and I made some of those adjustments. So that's really that's really the biggest sort of reference section of the book. There's also a section um, on kind of outside the voice studio components like um, uh, voice science, like how much voice science are we teaching and what does that look like in a CCM voice lesson? Do we teach people under 18? And if so, you know, what are the sort of reasons or rationale with that? If not, it was very interesting. Um, and then um, improvisation, how do we, do we teach improvisation? What else do we ask our students to do? Do we ask them to do bodywork modalities? Do we ask them to take dance classes or play an instrument or things like that? Um, so, so those are things that wouldn't necessarily come up in a classical book if you were talking to folks about classical singing or classical pedagogy, but definitely um, relevant. Um, also, audio technology. Are you using a PA system in lessons? And if so, what does that look like? How does that manifest? Um, and what uh, role does that play? Um, and uh, definitely, a, you know, a huge factor for CCM because there's there's a lot of times where you do need to use a handheld mic and understand how it works as an extension of your instrument. Absolutely. And um, so, working in the voice studio with the the um, with the equipment is really an important component. Uh, you obviously at in your university job um, obviously do a lot of musical theater teaching. Would you say that this book is is though not just only for musical theater singing? Like like in other words, there are more genres than just musical theater Correct. talked about in the book. Yes, absolutely. It was important to me that we had um, some uh, genre diversity, and CCM, as we know, is a, I I think it's a kind of a problematic term because it literally means like everything in the world that isn't Outside Western European of, classical I wasn't music. Going to bring it yeah. up since it is in the title of the book. Yeah, since no, you it's brought it up. I yeah. will echo your sentiment hundred <laughs> percent. Right. And so clearly it doesn't cover, you know, aboriginal cries or things like that. You know, there's there's some limitations to the scope of what it can truly cover. But really, I was interested in rock, pop, gospel, jazz, musical theater, um, and then folks who were doing cross training. So Mary Saunders Barton, for example, is in there and, and folks who work in multiple genres um, a lot. Um, so so that was definitely important. Trinice Robinson Martin is in there representing gospel and jazz and R&B. Um, and then I have um, some folks from Berkeley as well, Marcel Gauvin, um, talking about jazz, and um, uh, Jan Shapiro, and some other folks who come from, you know, non-classical world. So that was really important to me. There are, of course, fewer folks that, that I would have access to because there's fewer sort of university positions and things like that where you would know of somebody's work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so I recognize that like this is still limited by sort of access and my, and my scope and my awareness. And I should say too, I didn't choose the people who are going to be in the book. I put out a survey I put out a survey to like everybody I know, you know, on social media, all my singer friends, all my peeps and said, like, give me the names of like the top five pedagogues in CCM that, that you think I should talk to. And 
And so when I got the data back, that's who ended up in the book. So it wasn't, so I wanted it to, I was trying to get around my own bias and my own sort of limitation with who I knew and not have it just be folks in my inner circle, but have it be really a wider representation, which is how I got some of the names of international folks that I was not aware of at the time um, who were doing, you know, really cool work. Australia is a really interesting place. They have a very much more advanced philosophy on um, genre equity. And so they have, you know, great university programs programs that give equal resources to classical and contemporary programs. And it's a really interesting place to sort of tap into in terms of what pedagogy looks like there. So um, so that helped me in terms of the scope of the book and who was going to be in the book and what, what points of view we would have access to. I, I, I must confess, I didn't realize that, uh, that, 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 that I just sort of assumed that you had kind of picked them off the top of your head or had a conversation with one of your best friends or something or you know whatever and 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 decided on the on the people of the book that's actually fascinating i, I will also echo uh your australia comment i i was very impressed when we were there for icvt already in 2013 that i found that you know their jazz voice programs were as equitable as their classical voice program yeah. musical theater like there i agree with what you said um i was I was. I remember thinking in 2013. I think that in that regard, they're ahead of us for yep. sure. Definitely. Um, you know. So I. I that was. Um, that was something I was surprised by. So you know, when you. Um, when you actually were, you know, working on. Uh, I, 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 as a scientist, I would say collecting your data. <laughs> um, but when, w did you actually meet with these folks in person? Did you do it over the phone? Did you do it over Zoom, Skype, whatever it was back, you know, when you were doing this? You know, what, what was that like? Yeah, well, because, you know, all the folks I was interviewing were far away, um, a couple of them did want to meet on, on Zoom or Skype and or over the phone. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I did that and did the whole, you know, transcription process, which was incredibly time consuming. Yeah, I mean, I had to do an IRB. This was this was qualitative research for yeah. sure. I was gathering my data. Um, but most of the folks, thankfully, responded in writing. And so we were able to do That's it that nice. way. That was that was really nice. And also, I think for them, it gave them time to really formulate their ideas and articulate things exactly the way they wanted to, um, you know, because this was, you know, for a lot of folks, a delicate balance between wanting to share a lot of information but not give it all away for free yeah, um yeah. so so i think that especially for those who make their living from teaching their own methodology um they 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 benefited from having the time to craft it exactly the way that they wanted um and so ultimately it did save time i think in terms of the back and forth we still did a verification process and you know all the all the irb hoops and informed consent and all of that yeah. um but i you know but i think that it, especially in a qualitative situation where you're not waiving anonymity you know these their their names are attached to their thoughts and ideas here it's really important that everybody you know be protected and and um the transparency of the process i think is really essential to protect your contributors i i, mm -hmm. I, I mean yeah absolutely that that that's phenomenal i mean you know there are some good reasons that we do some stuff like that you know. Sometimes exactly. when yeah. you're going through an IRB process, you don't feel that way. No. <laughs> but, uh, having been through many myself. But but on the on the flip side, uh, you're usually kind of thankful that you did the, took those steps and did the right. thing. And, you know, there's obviously some some good, good reasons to, you know, 
what have you. Um, <laughs> would you give us like an example of something from the book? You know, you said you kind of. Um, I'm not going to ask you for the opposite of this, but like, would you give <laughs> us an example of you? You know, you said you kind of just found yourself aligning with certain things more, and that might be then someone you wanted to say. Give us an example of something that you sort of found throughout the throughout the interviews that you were like, oh yes, this is an example of something I definitely found that I, I aligned with, and then that called to me and made me want to work with this person, or maybe I, you know, whatever had worked sure. with this person or something like that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as we know, one of the hottest topics of conversation in voice pedagogy is registration. And um, that there's definitely like for me in terms of how I physically experience my own voice and often how I, um, you know, lead students in their own uh, interoception is is in two registers. I've definitely got two registers. And so um, so for me, working from a, a method or a point of view or even just a pedagogical philosophy that's really rooted in registration is rings really true it just it just it reflects what i experience in my own um in my own experience of my voice so um and there are a couple of methodologies out there estel and cvt that don't use registration at all they they describe um vocal colors or timbres or in cvt it's called modes, modes. um and so so it's not really it's not registrationally based it's really about vocal tract shaping um and they're not talking so much about vocal fold function and um, so for me, so for me, uh, you know, I, I tend more toward the the methods that are rooted in registration, just because that that, like I said, is what I experience when I sing and when I teach. Um, but the the vocal colors or the timbres or the modes work really well for some students, and so that's why that's I think a good example of something where even though it might not be how I experience my singing, maybe that's the tool my student needs to unlock something um, that's going to get them to their goal. And so that's why I think it's really valuable to look at other methods and ways of thinking and ways of organizing pedagogy to see you know what tools can I keep just in case the thing I try first doesn't work with my students. Yeah. You know, um, so that you have other tools to go to. That actually is an interesting question. So you you know you sent out these surveys or whatever. You let people craft their responses and things. Were there, and you don't need to call anyone out on this, but were there anyone? Was there anyone who was like, oh no, registration on something like this? No, registration doesn't exist. We never discuss it, like like or anything like that. Not well, not in a dismissive way. Not, not but that way. Certainly, okay, yeah, but certainly in a in a like. I don't use registration and here's why. Okay, And, perfect. you know, a rationale and an explanation. Um, Catherine Sadelin at CVT actually described the word registration as a polluted word because it can mean so many things. For sure. It can be yeah. dynamics. It can be vocal track shaping. It can be vocal fold activity. Um, and, and there's a lot of components to it and in CVT they they really want to they say that they have a rule that like every term has to have one meaning and only one meaning and so if something like registration can be defined six different ways that's not a term that they can use in their method so Got it. So that is, so so like I said, you know, if somebody said, no, that's not how I teach at all, they provided a rationale or reasoning and, you know, and it's something that we can sort of follow along and I can follow her argument, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, but like, I still from the way my brain works is I still want to know what register we're in. Like, I still need the answer to that question personally for me to be able to get my voice to do different things. But not every student needs that and not every, not every singer is going to perceive their voice in that way. So, so there's tremendous value you know this is one of my biggest takeaways from the book is that 
there was, a, you know, just a huge spectrum of ways that folks were teaching singing and and components where I was like, oh, I'd never think to do things that way, you know, um, but they're getting results. They're getting results. They're still in business. They've got students all over the world performing and yeah. that there isn't one correct way to do anything. And sure. and that there was sort of a value, I think, in celebrating uh, a diversity of approaches and our differences actually enrich the field. And and it's something to be valued rather than something to look at. Well, they can't even agree on no, you know absolutely. what to call things, yeah. you know, absolutely. and I don't think that that's evidence of a dysfunctional field. I think that's actually evidence of a thriving field because we have so many different approaches and and there is success to be found in a variety of paths. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I even listen, I mean, I even I tell my classes this even with my own teaching, like, I don't think I'm the voice teacher for everyone. Either. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm the first to admit that even as a voice teacher, I am an acquired taste one. <laughs> and two, I mean, she can tell you, um, my person to my right. Um, but not only that, but I also work better with different things. Mm -hmm. sure. I'm really good with musical theater treble belters, and I'm really good with tenors. Yeah, well, because it's the I'm, same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, similar. Let's and say I'm similar. Pretty darn good. I happen. To, I'm, I'm pretty darn good at teaching classical sopranos as well. But but you know I, I you know but i'm not for everybody and right. i recognize that i'm right. not for everybody and my things wouldn't work for 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 every i would never think that you know like that so i mean no it's absolutely evidence of a thriving field because we need because you know none of us are the thing for everybody right yeah. right you know and so i think it's why texts like this are great because you know i also think that your point is very well taken about some of these folks, their like method, so to speak, is paywalled, and for 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 good reason. Mm -hmm. And but um, you know, being able to you know at least get in some insight, dip your toe a little bit, be like, yeah. oh, okay, I get, I kind of get what your approach is now. Right. And I'd like to learn more. You right. Know, is, yeah. Is 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 really great. And to be completely honest, I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of one of our things here at, at Vocal Fry. I mean, like. You know, we never get everyone's actual full thing or their full well, sure. story we or their whatever. We want them to go get your book. <laughs> we want them to go buy your book so they can learn more about it, you know? Yeah. Or, 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 maybe, or, or, or maybe go to your website yeah. and learn more about you or maybe work with you or whatever. We're, we're yeah. not trying to provide the world with, you know, the 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 full uh you know tolkien version of of someone's uh you know thinking back to last week's episode yeah, of Wings I of Power. but you know so i love that I, I i absolutely adore that um so where is the how can they get the book uh, the book is available on the uh, Compton website, but it's a little convoluted, so I recommend Amazon. It's just much more direct. It's, why is it so much easier? Yeah. So much easier yeah. For I, so many of I, these books. You just go direct. You just go direct. Com Compton takes you to like a list, and then the book is on page two of that list, and so it's just a little confusing. You click on it, and then like it almost yeah. like it disappears. So, um, that would confuse me. Yeah, it's there, but it's on page two, folks. Um, but yeah, uh, Amazon is just direct and easy, so, um, so you can buy it there. It's the same royalties for me either way so it doesn't make any difference <laughs> so no good training, to know that makes me feel better <laughs> training contemporary commercial singers elizabeth ann benson compton publishing so there's your uh only released in 2020 is that yeah right? 2020. yeah 2020 wow. yeah phenomenal 
Well, I don't know anything else happened in 2020, so that's good. <laughs> there were a few things. I'm kind of amazed it happened in 2020, to be honest. Um, but it, no, it, it, it took four years, you know, from the beginning of the process sure. until the book came out. You know, it was it's it was a lengthy process. Well, because 25 contributors, it's a lot of people to keep track of and well, chase down yeah. and deadlines to enforce yeah on top of that yeah yeah no that's a yeah and then the data analysis you know took a really long time and and i should say too you know for each of these like uh technical pillar topics um i actually arranged the data and analyzed it and then give like a a lengthy introduction to say like on the topic of belting for example 25 percent of the pedagogues teach it this way 50 percent of them teach it this way and 25 percent teach it this way and sort of you know summarize that there's references and recommended reading on the topic too. a lot of voice science um, references and background so folks can sort of go there to learn where they can go to learn more Um, and so so that process of course in writing the introduction to every chapter and doing the qualitative analysis of of what folks had said and and because it was not you know it wasn't quantitative it wasn't clicking boxes it was open-ended responses and so it took a little interpretation to sort of you know figure out what everybody was saying and sometimes a little bit of back and forth with contributors to say can you clarify what you mean by this um and or can we can we abbreviate your response to this question <laughs> in a certain way um you know just to make sure a voice teacher being verbose i know i, I know well like and it's such you know i of course hated to do that in in any instance but i only had to do it a couple of times where if one person had written a tome and everybody else had written a paragraph right. i needed to make sure that we had Same you know thing. equitable representation sure, um sure. so so only in a few cases did i need to do that but um but you know that'll take takes time the correspondence with 25 contributors was a lot and so several years of that and I you know fortunately Auburn University has this amazing pre-tenure program where they give you a semester of teaching leave and you're just supposed to work on your research during that time that was incredible that was every day all day and I still wasn't anything close to done Um, so yeah it it definitely went into the next summer um but but in any case you know it 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 takes a long time to put a project like this together you know because of the correspondence component because it's it's qualitative and and that's just you know qualitative research is a much messier process but it's also you know one that preserves stories and individuality and points of view which was really essential for me in in the construction of this book that i wanted you to hear directly from the pedagogues not my interpretation of what they had said right so um so that's that's why and um you know at the end of the day you know i hope that it's a really fruitful resource for folks oh i think it's i think it's fantastic um so the book is training contemporary commercial singers um you can also there's a lovely link to it on her on elizabeth's website which is elizabethannbenson.com um and uh, one other thing I love about your website, I, in case Vocal Fam, if you're looking for resources, we were just talking about you know extended reading or whatever. You have a lovely belting bibliography. On your <laughs> website. It's fantastic. Thank you. It's a lovely little resource. Um, I would I would point you to it if you're interested in in researching that. You know, one of my students. It's funny. We've covered so many topics on this podcast over sixty five years that we've been doing this podcast. <laughs> um. Sure. Uh, but um, we we've covered so many topics, and 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 you know one 
somehow one of my grad students came to me the other day this well it's, i say the other day this was like a month this is like a month and a half ago like a month. This was like a month and a half ago and she said to me hey um one of my uh friends from my her undergrad was like do you guys have like a vocal fry specifically about belting where it's just about belting like what and i went i i don't think don't so. think so so at some point, maybe we'll have you back on uh, and we'll do a uh, little panel, uh, our own little sort of uh, panel of, of different pedagogues talking about belting. Because we realized as many times as we've actually talked about belting sure, in some aspect or like another. Bits and pieces, but not just We've a, never done an actual episode, apparently. Yeah. I guess it's time. Uh, it's so a great that idea. That will probably be happening at some, at point, some point in the future. But anyway, Elizabeth, um, so as we... as as all of our listeners know uh, we always ask uh, everybody you know if you have any wonderful pop culture interests yeah. that you'd love to share with the vocal fam and tell us about uh, uh, although through the pandemic it was just what is currently giving you joy yeah um, still a good question <laughs> which is still a good question but uh, wh- what do you do other than teaching singing anything <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course. No, I, I do, I do. Well, I have two, I have two wonderful children. Um, and so, you know, I do a lot of um, taxi driving and sure. um, various wow. activity pickups and drop-offs. Oh my gosh. Um, so that keeps me quite busy. Um, and it's actually a great balance because, you know, you literally cannot work while you're parenting. So um, that's that's been great. Um, but no, I, I've been actually really into Lizzo and especially yeah. Watch Out for the Big Girls, the the. Yeah. Emmy winning television show on Amazon Prime. Um, and I just went to see Lizzo's concert in Atlanta last weekend and it was incredible. Um, wow. I, cool. One of the reasons I love her, not just because her music is amazing and her singing is amazing and her rapping is amazing, but um, she's she's just such a great icon for body positivity and inclusion. Yeah. She's and such a cool person. I just, yeah, like I just want to, I just want to hear everything she has to say. Yeah. Um, and it actually coincided with, um, I just, submitted yesterday um uh my part one of my co-written article with kate rosen on anti-fat bias in the singing voice studio and so we've written a quite a long article it had to be divided into two parts um about what that looks like and the sort of context and culture that fat folks deal with on a regular basis and then what that looks like in the voice studio and how that can manifest and what sort of pedagogical modifications we can make to be more size inclusive as teachers um and it's just sort of you know um fat phobia or anti-fat bias is really the last remaining socially acceptable bias um and it's one that we we have to work really hard to dismantle because it's rooted in uh, medical medical recommendations. Uh, whether or not those are based on true facts is it takes a little bit more nuance to look at. Um, there's a lot of influence of media and money um, in terms of the narrative that we've all learned and grown up with. But um, but it's definitely something that um, I, I gained some weight um, due to sort of hormonal shifts. No matter what, I couldn't lose the weight. And so I had to kind of, you know, learn to accept my new larger body. And it sort of made me realize that like I hadn't I had sort of had thin privilege mindset. You know, I really hadn't thought about whether there were arms on the chairs in my studio or not. And if there's yeah. arms on your chairs, bodies of every size cannot sit comfortably. 
Um, and so even just a small thing like taking, <laughs> making sure you have a chair with no arms or, or desks that are not attached to chairs or um, our practice of, for example, standing in front of a full length mirror for the entire voice lesson. That's not gonna work for someone with body dysmorphia that's actually gonna be more damaging um, than it is helpful. So, so things like that um, that I hadn't really thought about and um, Kate and I sort of came together and said, you know, we gotta, we gotta write something about this because there was a lot of buzz um, following uh, some articles that came out about um, fatness, thinness, and and sort of the voice pedagogy recommendations and how that's going to manifest. And, you know, the population is body diverse. And um, do we have true body representation on stages and on television and film in this country? No, we do not. And so what does that mean? And how can we do a better job as teachers? This is something that means a lot to me um, personally, because uh, while I've enjoyed obvious privilege because of being a white male and tenor and a boatload of other things. The one perspective on this I can understand is that I was fat shamed for years and I was wildly heavy for a lot of my life and unhealthy. Um, it, mine was actually also a, an unhealthy thing. It wasn't just that I was larger, um, but uh, I was definitely the brunt of that. So if you mm. ever need another perspective on that for a part two or something, yeah, it's definitely something that uh, I, I can personally both relate to, but also that I've I re it made me rethink a lot of my own things that I might say to a student or not say to right. a student or how I would behave exactly. as, a, as a teacher um or, or or what have you um and you know now i'm also a person who's been through a, a massive body transformation to not being that way but not because of my appearance but because if i didn't i was gonna die yeah you know and so th- there are you know it, it is something that means a lot to me though so if yeah. you ever need another collaborator <laughs> thank you other thing I'm, I'm happy to provide some we we actually decided we wanted to run a study so we are we are doing a study qualitative research study collecting data from folks um, in in the form of interviews um, who have lived in large bodies and, and gone through singing training programs so um, so we are always looking we're still recruiting research subjects if you want to participate in the study happy um, to. I, I know yeah. that I know that a lot of times, and I, I will say, I think, well, no, I don't know. Colloquially, let's say, how's this? Colloquially, I have observed more of this sort of bias towards women. I'm not saying it's never happened towards men because it happened to me. Yeah. But I think more often we think of this as happening towards women, but I'm here to say that it doesn't just happen that way. Absolutely. Um, uh, so actually, this is f- fascinating. I didn't know y'all were doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's been uh, what I've been really digging into about the last six months or so. So, um, and we launched the study right at the end of the summer, and so you know we started doing interviews and everything at the same time that we were writing the sort of first article of yeah. what we hope is going to be several. Um, but we realized we really wanted to hear directly from folks about what their experiences were, um, both people who stayed in the industry and people who left the industry. Um, but yeah. you're you're right in that um, the data does support that women are really scrutinized differently than men in terms of what their bodies look like yeah there's there's research that supports all of that that it's in the data and also um the intersectionality of gender non-binary status or um being member of the lgbtq community or you know being a racial minority there's 
a lot of intersectionality that influences this and exacerbates anti-fat bias. Um, And so Lizzo being out there as a black woman who is incredibly educated and articulate and exceptionally good at what she does and being unabashedly fat, you know, it just makes me so happy. It's, it's, you know, a wonderful shift. And I think that sort of extreme body positivity, embracing of who she is and celebrating it is necessary so that we can live in middle ground, right? Right now there's no middle ground, right? You just need to be thin or you're wrong. And, and so getting Lizzo all the way out to affirming is, is I think an essential thing to shift our cultural mindset around fatness. Um, so that, you know, the majority of us are going to want to live in the middle, not necessarily celebrate our size, but, but, but have it as an option, you know, that's, that's on the table. So, so I think she's doing wonderful things, I think, to shift our mindset. Sure. On the pop culture end of Lizzo, can I just make a comment? This is, this is a little funny little anic- a funny little anecdote. So, Vocal Fam, you may think that Perna is very hip to pop culture. I am not. I have a very narrow, incredibly, very incredibly interested view of very certain things. It's Marvel and Star Wars, and Star Trek, and maybe it's nerd stuff. Thank you. <laughs> I am wildly unaware of a lot of other pop culture. Like, wildly so. Okay? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I just started seeing all these things popping randomly in my feed about Lizzo and the oh. flute. And the flute. The flute. The flute. And so I went to the one flute. of my undergrads, who I consider to be a more hip person than I am, and I said to her... Did I miss some large pop culture thing about Lizzo and a flute? Absolutely. And she said, a long time ago. And I was <laughs> like, like, two days ago. Yeah, it's been a while. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. never mind. Did, so, did like, you local then fam. find out so, about it? Yeah. Okay, just, check, just checking that you're not still walking around like, oh, it's no. too late to ask now. No. Miss but, this. But just in case you think that, like, I am, like, as hip to everything as I am to maybe, like, rumors of fantastic forecasting, I am I'm not. not. sure that counts as hip. Well, okay. To me. <laughs> again. It's okay. I think it's cool, too. I'm just, I, don't, I don't know if there are a ton of people that would be like, wow, so hip. Anyway. You know the rumors? Well, I was, I was hearing about the Disney Plus Doctor Who rumors for months now. I was not, and that came very excited for it. Anyway, um, Elizabeth, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for making time out of your schedule for us and for and to share with the vocal fam. Appreciate it, Sarah. What'd you have for breakfast? Oh, today was an avocado toast day. Put some pumpkin seeds on it. Got my protein. It was good. It was good. So millennial. It's good. Avocados are good for you. They are. They, they are. are. It's the a millennials are smart like that. You know, like she's already got a serving of fruit or vegetable. Like that's exactly. one up on me. I got Gen X. I just, I just did Cheerios. You know, I do like my little, my whole wheat toast. So I, you know, got my whole wheat there. Then I put some pumpkin seeds because it's like it's crunchy, it's texture, yeah. but it's also protein. I'm gonna be real. I did steal this particular like way I've been making it from this like nutritionist on TikTok of all places. But I was like, you know what? Cause she does it like she showed, she did it fancier than me. She did the avocado and then like feta cheese. And mm. even this is gonna sound crazy. You put a little balsamic vinegar, some cherry tomatoes. It's like a whole thing. It's a whole process. I didn't do all of that Amazing. this morning cause time, who has time to sit there in the morning <laughs> and slice up cherry tomatoes, not I. 
Um, but some days I do when I'm feeling real fat, like a Saturday morning, and I want yeah. to take it to the next level. Treat yourself. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Really quick, chef's hack, vocal fam. If you take two ceramic plates, you put I one down, that. you put the cherry tomatoes I on the plate, that. you put the other ceramic plate on top of it. You take your chef's knife, go right through it. You sliced but all to your be cherry tomatoes. Completely in honest, I have this innate fear that if I do that, I You're will gonna just cut yourself. Yes, yeah. and I think I would. I'm you pretty need an sure I would. Actual sharp chef's because knife. Because I to do all it. I have one, and I've cut myself with it multiple. Time. Like on a regular basis, Jamie will tell me like he always knows when I'm in the kitchen because he'll just hear either, oh no, and he knows that something has gone awry that I've you know maybe stabbed myself because I have a really bad habit of somehow I'll accidentally like poke myself with the pointy end of the butcher knife. I'm not I'm not very self aware or. He says he knows I'm using something sharp because I'll start apparently like subconsciously making up little songs about how this is okay and I'm not going to hurt myself this time. This I'm Amazing. so safe. And sometimes I don't. It's great. Anyway. Amazing. I'm not a good chef. I'm not a chef. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much. This has been a, a, a delight. Yes. And, uh, we thank you. Likewise. We look forward to having you on again sometime. Yeah. I'd love that. I'd love to come talk Belt. about belting. Belting. Yeah, absolutely. We we'll need get, to do we'll it. It's time. Okay, peace out, Vogel fam. Peace out. Thank you.